0: Thank you for setting your podcast dial to 14th and G. I'm your host, Dean Hingson. We're now more than two weeks past Election Day 2020, and with the dust settling, the process of counting ballots and certifying results, state by state grinds on. As Joe Biden moves forward with his transition as the presumptive next president, he does so in an environment where President Trump has not conceded the election, though his court challenges have borne little fruit. The president maintains allegations of widespread voter fraud, particularly focused on Pennsylvania, Georgia, and Arizona. The three states, had he won, would have ensured him a second term. Uh, The president's contention of fraud carries enormous weight with millions of Americans. Uh, First off, he's the president of the United States. But there's additional currency in that this election was conducted with an unprecedented amount of voting by mail. Uh, driven by the conditions of the pandemic. As we all now know, mail ballots skewed very much in Biden's favor, while in-person voting skewed very much to the president. Conditions that have made not only for painfully slow counting, but an unfamiliar process of seeing election night results changing over a course of days as that large number of mail votes are counted. So amid recounts and court challenges, uh, this election is concluding and the process is grinding forward. States will certify their results. The Electoral College will meet and will formally elect the president and vice president who will take their oaths of office on January 20th. The questions that remain are what we have learned and what it will mean for the future of the American electoral process. That's why I'm so pleased to be joined today by the preeminent expert on the mechanics of the American election to break it all down. Ben Ginsburg is most often described as a Republican super lawyer. That's because for nearly 40 years, he has worked tirelessly in the trenches of Republican campaigns, representing many of them in all of the House, Senate, and gubernatorial committees and associations. If you've been a Republican in an election dispute, you've wanted Ben Ginsburg on your team. He played a central role for the Bush campaign in the 2000 Florida recount and was portrayed by the great Bob Balaban in the HBO movie. And I can tell you, the resemblance is striking. Ben Ginsburg, (laughs) welcome to 14th and G.
1: Thank you. And thanks for that generous introduction.
0: (laughs) And as we come up on Thanksgiving, you know, from state certification, there are still some recounts ongoing uh, up through swearing in and inauguration. What are the mechanical next steps of the electoral process in the states as they get their work done and federally under the Constitution?
1: Well, Dean, what you're seeing now is each of the states going through their certification process, which means that each voting jurisdiction, generally counties, but in places like Wisconsin and Michigan, townships and towns as well, are all going back and being sure that their accounts were accurate. In other words, that the machines that recorded the counts were, and uh, they just go back and sort of do a double check. When each county is done, it sends its results up to the state for the state certification process. In the uh, In the states that are kind of still alive, Uh, The certification dates are November, range from November 20th to December 1st. When that happens, the slate of electors is determined. There's a safe harbor day in the Electoral College of December 8th. As long as the states have certified the winner, then that slate is not subject to challenge later by Congress. The slates of electors meet on December the 14th in each of the 50 state capitals, they confirm their votes, then that information is sent up to uh, the Congress, to the Senate. It's received by December 23rd. On January 3rd, the new Congress is sworn in. And on January 6th, uh, the House of Representatives meets to open the magic envelopes and to uh, declare the winner of the Electoral College The Senate will do the same for the vice president. That really is a pro forma exercise, uh, almost universally in in our history. And uh, then the inauguration is, of course, January 20th at noon.
0: So as long as those state results are certified and received by the safe harbor date, the Electoral College meets on December 14th to do the formal election. But so long as those state results are certified and in by the safe harbor date, they they cannot be challenged by Congress. Correct. Ben, I had a somewhat distressing conversation with my dad recently. Uh, He's a supporter of the president. He's back in North Carolina. And he was clear that he was fine to win or lose at the end of the day. But he was vehement that he's entitled to know who won this election and to have confidence in the result. What do you say to those who don't live in the DC bubble who have no reason to track these events with the sophistication of an election lawyer, a pundit or a lobbyist who just want to have confidence in our elections? How do we maintain restore that trust?
1: That that's a great that's a great question and one of obvious tremendous importance these days because we are a divided country and nobody much likes to lose. And, and so the answer to that is, I think, to look at the way the election was conducted in your own jurisdiction, in your own hometown or home county, and recognize that there are lots of procedures in the law for airing things that you find might involve irregularities in the election or fraud, so that each state does have a procedure where a candidate, or in some cases voters, can take something they think is wrong and adjudicate that. In other words, have responsible officials hear that case. So what you're seeing now with the Trump campaign is they're exercising that right under the laws of the different states, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Nevada, Wisconsin, Arizona, and basically... Asking that those state officials take mistakes that the Trump campaign thinks it's found, and decide whether that throws enough uh, ballots in dispute to change the outcome of the election. And they'll be um, perfectly able to go through that. But once that process is gone through, that is the finalized result. So the Trump campaign is in the process in this month, these few weeks, of being able. To prove any cases that they have that the results are illegitimate. So just like you trust your neighbors who are running the votes in your neighborhood, you should realize that it is folks just like them who are doing it in those contested states. Well,
0: Ben, you've seen something roughly analogous uh, to what we're dealing with. Probably, maybe not a maybe not a, a great analogy, but you were in the eye of the storm in in the Florida recount back in two thousand. Uh, Five hundred thirty-seven votes separated Bush and Gore out of the millions of ballots cast. There are no states in twenty twenty with margins that close. Uh, no. But the Florida recount did present issues of what constituted a legally cast ballot how the count was conducted, when the count was finished. What's so different from the Florida recount versus the cases that the president's lawyers have made in this election?
1: Florida was an unbelievably close election where all parties recognized that there would be a recount because of the, of the closeness of the vote. And one significant distinction is that no one said to stop the initial count of votes president did call for uh, absentee ballots to not be counted, although the absentee ballots he wanted not counted were perfectly legal under the laws of the different states. So that's a fundamental difference between the two of them. You mentioned that the margin uh, was so much closer in Florida than in any of the states. I mean, it's a little more than 11,000 in Arizona, and that's as close as it as it comes. It is. Fundamentally different when you have a a state within 537 votes or 1,300 votes on election day, and over 10,000 votes when you start the contest proceedings. It's just just different chances of success. So no one in Florida, no one doubted that there should be recounts. Here, the president has the burden of showing that there were enough irregularities or fraudulently cast ballots to change the margins in each of those states. And so whether he has done that or not is the subject of all this litigation, that never arose in Florida.
0: Well, sort of looking forward here, because I I do think a lot of this is about how Republicans approach, particularly the mail-in voting system going forward. I mean, one of my analogies for this election is a football game, which is not a terribly original (laughs) political analogy, but you know, the massive amount of absentee mail ballots we knew were coming, uh, they like constituted the first three quarters of a ball game in which Republicans didn't really compete. The Democrats ran up the score and we played beyond expectations in the fourth quarter, uh, that early and election day in-person voting, but we couldn't overcome the lead they had built up. And I think vote by mail is sort of the analog version of remote voting, right? And I don't think it's going anywhere, maybe not on this scale, but I I don't think it's going anywhere even when life gets back to normal. Can Republicans compete long-term without getting into the mail voting game?
1: Well, uh, so Dean, I I think the Republicans have historically been in the mail voting game. And so the Abandonment of mail-in voting this time, I think, will be seen as a major strategic mistake. You know, the the first recount, Senate recount, I ever did was Connie Mack's nineteen eighty eight race in Florida, where he lost on election day, but the Republican Party of Florida ran such a great absentee ballot program that he ended up winning by many thousands of votes. It isn't that. Republicans have bad mail-in ballot programs. In fact, we're pretty good. That's why you saw any number of state parties, including Pennsylvania and Florida, tell people to go ahead and vote by mail, despite the president's sort of, I mean, honestly, uninformed comments about mail-in voting. The president objected to universal mail-in voting, which is where every registered voter in the state got a live ballot. And that was true only in nine states in the country. And the only vague battleground state it was true in was Nevada. But in every other state, it was the same process that Florida uses, which is where the president cast his absentee ballot. And that is uh, a voter has to ask for an application. The application is verified. Then they get sent a ballot. And before the ballot is returned, there are various, various authentication processes that the ballot goes through. Why the president's message was countered to so many state party messages that mail-in balloting was good might explain your very valid point that Republicans didn't, didn't play in the game for the initial part, although they certainly had the opportunity and it's certainly been good in it. And you think at the time of the pandemic, there would be some Republican voters, especially older Republican voters who would want to take advantage of mail. And why right. why would you discourage?
0: them? Right. Because there are and, and there's there's two lines here, right? There are and it's a lot of Western states, I think, that have actual vote by mail systems and you you get your ballot. And that's like I know Washington state. That's how you vote. You vote by mail. Versus uh, most states, I think, where you have to make a request. It's an absentee vote by mail system, and it's interesting what you said because the polling. I think one thing the polling did get right in 2020 was that just how much more disposed Republican voters were to vote in person versus that versus that large mail vote coming in for for Joe Biden.
1: Yeah, but let's not forget that that while. Uh, the result on the presidential level went to the Democrats. Republicans did very, very well and beat expectations in the U.S. Senate, the U.S. House, and state legislative races all around the country. The few governorships that were up this time, and so you can't, I think, consistently make the argument that Republicans were hurt by in, in vote by mail and the way it played out when. They actually did just fine in more races than anyone thought they would.
0: Well, you've been you've been involved in Republican campaigns and elections for uh, for such a long time. Looking forward, you know, is this just a simple matter of in in elections going forward of saying, of not casting doubt on the vote by mail system, or or are there things that the Republican Party, the state parties, should be doing uh, to compete better? Uh, in that vote-by-mail system to see, to make sure these margins from 2020 aren't repeated?
1: I think in a number of states, Republicans compete very well in vote-by-mail. And Republicans have prided themselves, rightfully so, on having superior field operations and better data than the Democrats. And those are the core ingredients to a get-out-the-mail uh, campaign. I, I do think that the pandemic has sort of speeded up the country's general uh, use of absentee mail-in ballots. And, you know, I, I think in the future, we'll decide as a party, the Republican Party will decide that we can play in this game. In fact, we can dominate in this campaign and use the superior ground game and superior data to take advantage of where frankly, the country is going, which is to make voting more convenient.
0: Right. I mean, we uh, we get everything from toilet paper to patio furniture on our phones and, and order it uh, remotely. You and I are speaking remotely today. Uh, it's just where the world is headed. And I I, I don't want, you know, I, I want us to embrace the future to, to be successful going forward.
1: Yeah. And, you know, interestingly enough, the Senate and House campaigns and legislative campaigns embraced, vote by mail much more than the presidential campaign again with good results we should not we should not be afraid of vote by mail the president has a very valid point that the universal mail in programs where every voter just gets a live ballot without going through more authentication processes is problematic and you know, i think that's true but that's something to be fought at the legislative level in each state much more than when it comes to the get out the vote stage of things and telling people they shouldn't vote in the way that's most convenient for them.
0: That's an excellent distinction, Ben, and in, in, in states and localities. I mean, I, I I vote here in the District of Columbia, I'm not I'm not yes a very, <laughs> not a very effective voter here in the district, but you know, we, we you and I both got ballots in the mail, never requested it. I ended up uh ended up going to Nats Park and Casting my vote. I finally made it to the park uh, after the World Series uh, to cast my vote, but I got a ballot I never asked for.
1: Yeah, and I put mine in a drop box, which uh, was the most convenient way for me to vote. Although Republicans in some places uh, fought against drop boxes.
0: Yeah. Going a little bit farther into the future, I see uh, Robert Cairo's Master of the Senate, the third (laughs) volume in his masterful biography of President Johnson. I see it on the bookshelf behind you. It is true. The second volume of that biography was titled Means of Ascent. It's an explosive account of LBJ's first election to the Senate in 1948. LBJ stole that election. Uh, He had been robbed himself in 1941. I think he felt entitled, Uh, but we know he stole the election and we know how he stole it because we have the paper records in the precincts where he stuffed the ballot boxes. There's so much comfort in that paper trail and, you know, called vote by mail, the analog version of remote voting. I'm wondering what you make of all the digitization of our vote in-person voters voting electronically today, or even some point in the future, remote voting by email on your phone. How do you see that?
1: Well, I was part of a presidential commission to take a look at, uh, at, at voting back in 2013 and 2014. And we, we asked a lot of experts about electronic voting, voting by email. And uniformly, the people who understand the security of our email system said, you cannot allow <laughs> voting by email. Do right. not do it. The, sur- the, the issue surfaced again in this cycle. And those security experts were equally adamant that, that we are we are a long way from being secure enough to do that. One of the, one of the interesting trends that's taken place over... The last few years is that there were a number of machines that were just touchscreen with no paper trail. And they fell out of favor. One of the states which originally had no paper trail ballots and went to paper trail ballots this year was Georgia. So I think the Georgians, an all Republican state, if there ever was one, right. are breathing a massive sigh of relief as their results were close enough on the presidential level. They're engaged in a hand recount. Certainly the scrutiny is even greater because of the two U.S. Senate runoff elections on January 5th. But Georgia's hand recount, uh, which is supposed to be completed on time for the state's certification deadline of this Friday, is a testament to the need for there being a paper trail to be able to take some comfort. And of course, You can tie back the number of ballots that are cast with the number of people who sign in on the poll book for in-person voting or the number of absentee ballot envelopes that exist.
0: Ben Ginsburg, you're an optimist. You feel good about the future of the Republic?
1: I feel good about the future of the Republic.
0: That's terrific to hear. Uh, Ben Ginsburg. thanks for joining me today on 14th and G.
1: Dean, thanks for having me.